0: You ate well this last week. A number of our people are gone this morning. Hopefully, they're having uh, steak and potatoes at another church because I hope to serve you some this morning in our sermon. Um, You know, we just had a great time this past week with friends and family on both sides of the family, and uh, hopefully, you had time to read a familiar Christmas passage, have that special time as a family. Uh, My family enjoyed Christmas Eve service up at the E Free Church in Marshalltown, my wife's home church. uh, her grandpa there, and then my dad back in Norwalk. Both read the Christmas story, and you can picture in Norwalk, nine grandsons, eight and under, all in one house. It's it's a lot of fun, <laughs> and um, you know, fantastic meals, board games. We went sledding at the WaveLand Golf Course Friday. Uh, just just a great week, and um, at the same time, I was thinking about how you know, there's some of us here who are without their spouses at this time of year, who have gone on to glory, and uh, I was just thinking of you in a special way this past couple of weeks, praying for God's comfort and peace for you. Um, over the past month, we've been looking at Old Testament prophecies of a coming Messiah leading up to Christmas. And next week, as it's been said, we start a new series called Modern Family. And that's going to be a good time to hear from the Bible on a subject that hits most of us, you know, where we can't escape it 24-7, uh, our marriage and our family life. And I believe a series like this really has the potential to do great things in our lives. And, uh, so, and this is also an opportunity, as has been said, to invite someone, and I'd encourage you to maybe even just right now for a second think of someone or a couple uh, who you this week could ask, uh, who would that person be to ask to invite to come next week? Uh, so this morning we have a Week in Between series, and I thought it would be good to continue in the Prophecies of the Coming Christ series, but not looking at his first coming anymore, uh, coming to Bethlehem in a manger Kyle Clarkson on our preaching team uh, has mentioned how there are approximately 300 Old Testament prophecies of a coming Christ, of a coming Messiah. And I looked that up, and indeed by one author's count, there are 333 of them. I'll take his word for that. Uh, but did you know that only 100 of those were fulfilled 2,000 years ago when Jesus' birth and life and death and resurrection? That leaves over 200 remaining to be fulfilled, which are yet future referring to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so just as much as we believe that these Old Testament prophecies about his first coming came true, we must also believe just as well that the rest have yet to be fulfilled and will be fulfilled in Christ's second coming. And I would even say that the fact of His second coming is a primary doctrine for believers. You know, We can have some agreeable differences on the fine details of the end times theology, but, but there is no doubt that Christ is coming again. That is something we hold true as believers in Christ. And the Bible has so much to say about it. I can't possibly hope to cover everything my heart would like to say about the second coming. But what I want to do this morning is to focus specifically on reasons why Christ must return again. And I hope that when you leave this morning, you'll have a greater sense of expectancy, a greater sense of hope and joy and peace in your hearts that Christ is coming again. And maybe your appetite will be whetted just enough to dive into the Bible again and refresh your minds on those great prophecies and truths of his second coming. Uh, first of all, I want to start out by mentioning a few unhealthy views of the second coming. Uh, first of all, three unhealthy views of the second coming. First one is denying the second coming." In Second Peter, chapter three, Peter writes, "Scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, "Where is the promise of his coming?" For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So there are scoffers, unbelievers, who deny the second coming of Christ. Did you know there are also people who call themselves Christians who deny the second coming of Christ? Part of the reason may be that, well, it has been 2,000 years since Christ first came, and he hasn't come yet. And so many of the liberal theologians and some of the reformed theologians say, well, it's going to come a little differently. Um, maybe he's not coming. Then there's verses on the Bible they say that give it, more, they give it more of a spiritual meaning. Maybe Christ's second coming was a, a coming into, individually into hearts. Maybe that's his second coming. Some uh, just reject it completely. Some say that the coming of Christ was fulfilled historically in AD 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. A coming of judgment, they would say it was. The big problem with this is that there are a lot of promises of the Lord coming down to earth again and reigning and ruling over the earth as a political ruler. He came in humility, died on a cross for sinners 2,000 years ago, and 40 days after his resurrection when Jesus ascended to heaven, Acts 1, 10 and 11 tells us, and while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, men of Galilee... Why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Were the angels wrong? I think you'll agree that denying the second coming is denying the truth of the Bible. And I'll get more into that in just a little bit. The second unhealthy view of end times, or the second coming of Christ, is sensationalism. Uh, So at the opposite end of denying the return of Christ are those who want to sensationalize everything Scripture says about future events by claiming fulfilled prophecies in the latest news headlines. Uh, Some of you might remember Hal Hal Lindsey's books in the 1970s and 80s that kind of pointed to a uh, a rapture and tribulation in the 1980s. Uh, didn't happen. There was the book called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988 by Edgar Weisenan, who changed it to 89 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1989 who I think stopped publishing that line of books after that. Uh, there was Harold Camping, who wrote 1994, in which he predicted the Lord's return on September 7th, 1994. The same Harold Camping made a huge deal about the Lord's coming, specifically on May 21st, 2011. You remember that last year? It was all over on the billboards and in the news and newspaper, and you could hear him on the radio clearly claiming, and just when I heard this on the radio, we were sitting in a drive through and he in this big, you know, big commanding voice said, the Bible 100% guarantees the Lord will return on this day. The Lord didn't come on that day. You know, that kind of date setting approach to prophecy and the second coming, unfortunately, causes many from the outside to write off Christianity all the more. You know, many of the details of biblical prophecy aren't given to us in the Bible. We do have a pretty clear outline of it, but not all the fine details, not the dates. And it reminded me of a verse. Jesus himself said, But of that day and hour, No one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And he also said, Take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. The angels don't know. Jesus himself limited the use of his omniscience. He didn't know when he was on earth. How can any human claim to know the day and hour? We don't know. We can't be sensationalists. The third unhealthy view of the second coming is indifference. There are many Christians who don't take an interest in biblical prophecy at all, using maybe the excuse that it's too mysterious or too difficult to understand, or or as long as I'm saved, that's all I need. Everything will turn out all right in the end. Well, it's true that if you are a believer in Christ, everything will turn out all right in the end. It'll be awesome. It'll be glorious. It'll be wonderful for you. But what I want to encourage you about is that it's not good to put prophecy and end-times theology on the back burner. There's so much blessing to be had. There's so much joy to be had. So much expectation. So much motivation for our Christian service in our lives when we study prophecy of the second coming of Christ. You really have to forfeit some of the great riches and a great portion of the Bible. So much of the Bible talks about end times theology and the second coming of Christ. You really kind of have to ignore a great part of the Bible if you're not going to take an interest in prophecy. Randy Alcorn wrote a book called Heaven. In which he said that if you were going on a mission to Mars, you would train for it. Prepare your life for it. Find out everything you could about your future on Mars before you went. And then he asked, shouldn't we train and prepare and seek to understand everything about our future in heaven? You know, including the second coming of Christ before we go? You know, end times theology is a big part of that. We don't have to leave it up to the professional theologians to write books about it. Um, But it's up to us. We can dive into it for ourselves and let it affect our lives here and now. And so I want to talk about just five reasons why Christ must return again. First of all, Christ's credibility demands it. You remember the night Jesus was betrayed before he was crucified, how he told his disciples, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's pretty clear. Listen, if Jesus doesn't come again, he's a liar. But his own words here in John 14 guarantee he will come back. In Matthew 24, Jesus described his coming this way. Matthew 24, verses 27-31. For as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the earth to the other. Jesus very clearly here says that he is coming again, and it will be a coming with great power and glory in such a way that the whole earth will know it. There will be no mistaking it. We haven't missed it yet. It wasn't in AD 70. The whole earth will see the sign. They will know that Jesus has come again. And Jesus also told several parables to emphasize the truth of his second coming. He taught them at that time how the aspect of his kingdom then was a spiritual aspect, but, but that at his second coming, he would come back like a ruler who went away for a while and returned to his kingdom to rule and judge and bless his faithful servants. You see that in his parables. So his credibility demands it. Secondly, the apostles' teaching, which is inspired by the Holy Spirit, demands it. We don't have time to get into all the details this morning, but when you study the Bible and take a literal approach the prophecy. When you interpret scripture, approaching it with its plain sense, its normal sense, the, written in its historical context, you come, you, it's pretty clear that there are two parts to his return. And uh, the first part, if we can go to the next slide, is, is called the rapture. Uh, when Christ comes down to the clouds and the believers alive at that time are caught up in the clouds to meet him in the air and to be with him forever. Then there is a seven-year period that the book of Daniel chapter 9 talks about, Matthew 24 talks about, several of the middle chapters of the book of Revelation talk about, called the tribulation. It's a time of judgment for the earth. And then at the end of seven years, we see in Revelation chapters 19 and 20 how Jesus Christ comes down to the earth to judge sinners and set up his kingdom for a thousand years. And we call that the millennium or the millennial kingdom. And then later after that, it's followed by the creation of a new earth, our world as it should be, where we will one day live. Uh, The apostles wrote about both parts of the second coming, the rapture and the second coming at the end of the tribulation. But primarily, it encouraged believers out of that first part, the rapture, um, because that's the very next event on God's prophetic calendar. It could happen at any time. And uh, they believed that, and they wrote about it with a real sense of expectancy. And just want to share a few verses along those lines. In uh, Philippians 3, the apostle Paul wrote, verse 20 for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the savior the lord jesus christ who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself do you see the expectation of the believers there they weren't looking for the judgments of the tribulation they weren't looking for the antichrist they weren't looking for the abomination of desolation they were simply eagerly waiting for Christ. That's what they were expecting. They were looking for Christ to come and for their transformation. That's what happens at the rapture. He also wrote to the believers in the city of Thessalonica, these verses in Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians four sixteen and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. In context, some of the first generation of believers after Christ had died. After Christ had ascended back to heaven. And the believers alive at that time were concerned about them. They had an expectation that Christ could come at any moment. But to assure them about those who had died, Paul wrote, that they would also have a resurrection at the same time as those who are alive at that time. When Christ comes down to the clouds, the dead in Christ will be raised. Those who are alive will be caught up in the clouds. That word caught up is the Latin rapure, where we, where we get the word rapture from. Um, and we will meet the Lord in the air. Uh, one more verse here to share with you. 1 John 3, 2, it's just one of the greatest promises in Scripture for believers. It says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, For we shall see him as he is. When Jesus Christ is revealed again, we will be like him. We will be transformed into his likeness. There's an expectation that he will be revealed again. The apostles wrote about that, and so their credibility um, is at stake here too. Thirdly, Christ must return again because he has a plan for the church that demands it. John MacArthur in his book, The Second Coming, uh, which I am indebted to in my study on this subject, wrote about this idea by using the illustration of the wedding process in New Testament times. In those times, marriages were arranged by parents. The marriage contracts they made for their children were binding and were sealed with the husband-to-be or the father paying a price or a dowry to the father of the bride in case he died before the ceremony took place or, or deserted her in some way. Once the price was paid, the contract could only be terminated by divorce even before the wedding vows were exchanged, before the physical union was consummated, there would have to be an official divorce. Then there was an official wedding ceremony, kind of like ours today, but it was much different in the fact that it took place long before the marriage could be consummated, sometimes even a year or more before. Uh, Can you imagine that today? We don't see that today, do we? You know, Mary and Joseph kind of had that sort of an arrangement, didn't they? Uh, During this time, the groom would prepare a place for his bride, maybe in addition to his father's house, And then finally, the groom and friends would have this great marriage ceremony and a feast, kind of like that wedding at Cana in John 2 and the parable of the virgins in Matthew 25. And the New Testament uses this imagery to describe the relationship between the church as the bride of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 5, 25 to 27, it talks about how husbands are to love their wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. The church is the bride of Christ, which will one day be presented to her bridegroom. He paid the price for his bride with his own blood when he died on the cross. We were bought with a price, it says in 1 Corinthians 6.20. And he's gone to prepare a place. There's the preparation. He's gone to prepare a place for his bride. That's what he said in John 14, in his father's house. And so this whole time between his first and second coming is kind of like that engagement period where he's gone to prepare a place. And finally, one day, Jesus is coming again to claim his bride. In Revelation chapter 19, verses 6-9, through nine, we read about this glorious scene in the future when the church, the bride of Christ, is united with Christ in what people call the marriage supper of the Lamb, It says, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia! For the Lord God Omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb, and He said to me, "These are the true sayings of God." It's just a rich picture of the marriage uh, between Christ and His Church. So Christ planned for the Church; His bride demands His return. He will come to claim His bride. Fourthly, Christ must return because a sinful world, an uh, evil world, demands it. You know what? Uh, listen, I, I mean, aren't you ter- tired of all the evil? destructive things happening in our world today. You know, that massacre in Connecticut this month reminds me all too well of that. You know, there's such a sadness in our hearts as we think about that. And um, for me, anyways, it created a deep longing for the return of Christ, for him to come back and make things right again. Aren't you tired of the wars, the natural disasters that claim thousands of lives? Death is a result of sin, and it'll be wonderful when one day Christ returns and sets up his kingdom, and one day the new earth, and one day there will be no death, or sadness, or sickness, or pain, or sorrow. You know, Satan's evil plans are growing stronger in our culture. Morality is quickly declining. The latest evidence of that being the legalization of homosexual marriages in many states. Nearly 40 years of the murder of the innocents that's so commonly called abortion. I find it interesting that so many people recognize the tragic murder of 20 elementary-aged children as an atrocity in Connecticut, but could care less about the millions of innocent, defenseless, unborn babies that have been killed in our country since Roe v. Wade. The number is about 56 million now. I just looked that up. It's an unbelievable, unimaginable number. You do some math and that number averages out to more than 3,300 abortions daily, or 137 abortions per hour every hour in the United States. Or you can translate it another way: an abortion is done about every 30 seconds. It's just mind-blowing. So Christ must return to judge the world and to restore the world. The world, the system now demands it. In 2 Thessalonians chapter one verses 7 through 10, and there's other passages like it, Paul wrote, "And to give you who are a troubled rest with us." when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Jesus Christ is coming to judge the world one day. And he will make things right. In Revelation 19 and 20, you read those two chapters and and you see this vision of Christ coming on a war horse, bringing judgment on his enemies, imprisoning Satan for a thousand years during the millennium, and and then restoring and ruling over everything in the new heavens and new earth. And I long for that. I don't know about you. I long for that. You know, God allows Satan and this present evil system to exist for a while, But one day that will come to an end and Jesus Christ will completely overthrow and destroy Satan when he comes and and imprison him and cast him into the lake of fire and everything will be made right one day. I long for that all the more as I look around our world today. Christ must return again. Fifthly, Christ must return again because there are so many prophecies that he will come again. Just looking at the Old Testament messianic prophecies, Not even all the New Testament has to say, but as I mentioned at the beginning, there are over 200 Old Testament prophecies of a coming king waiting to be fulfilled yet. A Messiah, a ruler, one who will rule on the earth. And they're just as good as the prophecies about his first coming. You know, if we believe in the prophecies about his first coming at all, we must believe these about his second coming. And I think about those Old Testament prophets, you know, they probably didn't understand everything that they were writing as God told them what to write. They might not have all understood that there were two comings of Christ, one of a suffering Messiah and one of a great glorious ruler on the earth. Maybe they couldn't see that. Um, you can see a little picture here I borrowed. you know, Maybe Isaiah here looking towards the future, making his prophecies. He sees, the, he sees one coming of Christ, but he could maybe see this valley of the church age in between. You know, some of his prophecies were about the first coming of Christ, some about the second coming of Christ, even in the same prophecy, you know. And uh, the good thing, the glorious thing for us today is we're on this side of the cross with the Holy Spirit inside us and dwelling us, guiding us into truth, helping us to understand these things. Um, If you look at, just as a reminder of the prophecies of his first coming, you remember how Isaiah said he would be born of a virgin. Micah said he would be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah said he would be a descendant of Jesse and uniquely anointed with the Holy Spirit. Zechariah said he would enter Jerusalem riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey. In the Psalms, David wrote, he would be betrayed by a familiar friend with whom he shared a meal. This is getting pretty specific. Uh, Zechariah said he would be stricken and a sheep scattered. He also said he would be betrayed by the price of 30 pieces of silver. You know, you stack these prophecies one upon another and they're pretty detailed. And like it's been mentioned in previous weeks, the the chances of these all happening and coming true in one person are pretty great um, if you weren't the one. Isaiah said, gave several details of his crucifixion in chapters 52 and 53. David in Psalm 22 wrote about the details of the tortures at the cross, even the way his clothes would be divided after he died. In Psalm 34, it said that none of his bones would be broken. In Psalm 16, his body would not see decay, which is a sign of the resurrection. And so all these prophecies of the first coming came true. And uh, if you look at the ones of his second coming, and uh, there are 200, I just want to share a handful here. In 2 Samuel, it said that a descendant of King David will establish his kingdom forever. That has not happened. In Psalm 2, David wrote that God's Son will rule over the nations and the earth with power. In Daniel 2, it says that God will set up a kingdom which shall stand forever. In Daniel 7, it says that the Son of Man will be given dominion and glory in a kingdom which shall not pass away. In Psalm 89, it says he will be made the highest of the kings of the earth. In Psalm 110, he shall judge among the nations and make his enemies his footstool. In Isaiah 9, it says the government will be upon his shoulder. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. In Zechariah 2, it says, sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst, says the Lord. So there's this real sense of expectation, even clear back in the Old Testament prophets, centuries before Christ came the first time, that he would even come a second time. I just want to look at one of these uh, for a moment in Psalm 2. Look at Psalm 2 and verses 6 through 9. It says, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. In that prophecy there, that's, a, that's of the Messiah. He's coming again one day, and he's going to be given the nations, the whole earth for his inheritance, his possession. And he will rule over it with a rod of iron. He will be a, a strong political ruler over the earth, literal, earthly kingdom. And he will destroy his enemies. Uh, brothers and sisters, so five good reasons here, compelling reasons why Lord Je- the Lord Jesus Christ must return again. Christ's credibility is at stake. The apostle's teaching demands it. This evil world system demands it. The marriage symbol of Christ and his church demands it. And and the prophecies demand it. Uh, This will affect our lives if we study it, I believe, and uh, it does for me. There's just something about prophecy that's so uplifting, you know, and uh, first of all, some practical exhortation here, and go to the next slide here, it's encouraging to continue on in our faith. Um, you know, when we realize that there's an end to all of this, that there's a goal, there's purposes God has for us in this planet that encourages us to continue on in the faith. In James 5.8 it says, You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So the reality of the second coming helps us press on through the difficulties of life. It encourages our prayer. Peter wrote in chapter 1 Peter 4.7, he said, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Prayer is absolutely necessary to our spiritual vitality. And, and we're encouraged to do so all the more as we wait for his return. Uh, thirdly, it encourages us to keep coming together as a church body for encouragement and um, worship. In Hebrews 10, it says, Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching, so much the more as we see the coming of Christ again, we are to gather together and worship and encourage one another. It encourages us to live godly lives. I read 1 John three, 2 and 3 earlier. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. If we have an expectation for the coming of Christ, and we believe that we will be transformed into a Christ-likeness when we see him, that should motivate us to purify our lives now. There's some motivation for holy living now. It encourages our evangelism, our discipleship, we just look at the last words of Jesus you know, soon before he left. Our, our marching orders are to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Those are our marching orders until he comes again. It motivates us in our evangelism and discipleship. It motivates me in my Bible study, uh, my ministry to others, hopefully you too, and you know, just having that knowledge that Christ will return, could return at any moment for believers, and the rapture should turn our hearts toward heaven. It should redirect our worldly thoughts, our worldly plans, to be more in line and in tune with His plans for us and for this world. As I come to a close here, one special privilege we have now that I am not sure we will have when Christ comes again is the Lord's Supper. When in communion we come together. We take the bread and the cup to remember his death on the cross for our sins. You know, once we are with him, we are with him. Um, maybe, maybe we will still do it as a special way to remember the cross. I, I don't know. Um, but when we are with the Lord, it might not be necessary. And so I want to leave you with a few verses here from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took some bread. So we do this till he comes. And um, if you're a member of Cornerstone or if you're a believer who's been attending here a while or a visitor who's a believer this morning, this is for you. Uh, This is the time to come forward and in your hearts as you take the bread and the cup, say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for all you've done for me. And you look forward till the second coming of Christ, too, at the same time. Um, If you're not crystal clear on your relationship with the Lord, if you don't know 100% sure that you're going to heaven, that you have eternal life, uh, there's no pressure to come forward. You'll just stay seated during this time, and it's a great time to think about your relationship to the Lord. Um, have you admitted you are a sinner, deserving of God's judgment, broken God's laws? Do you, do you under, really understand and believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came to earth as a man and died on the cross to take on the penalty of sin for all who would believe in him? Have you committed your life? Have you confessed Jesus Christ? Not, not only just believe the facts about him, You know, we can say we believe the facts, and I don't disagree with any of the facts about this, but have you really confessed him as your personal Savior and committed your life to him as your Lord? That's very important. One day, could be any day, Jesus is coming again. Are you ready? You know, at this time, the believers are going to come forward during the music to do something very special Taking communion as Jesus asks us to, to remember His death for us, and um, but you could also do something very special during this time. You could you could admit, uh, believe, confess, and commit your life to the Lord Jesus. And I don't know how many more days we'll have to the Rapture, but it'll be a glorious day if you are a believer. Uh, not so glorious if not. Will you believe today? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we. Um, it's a refreshing reminder. It's. It's kind of a jet tour through the doctrine of your second coming and a whirlwind of verses, I'm sure. But, Lord, it's also the steak and potatoes of your word. Uh, We just thank you for the prophecies you've given to us of the second coming of Christ. And uh, I just pray for it, a spirit of expectation here in our congregation, a a spirit of uh, belief and uh, motivation in their service and godly living in this life now out of this doctrine. And I just thank you that Jesus is coming again to set things right on this world. Lord, how we long and cry out for him to come again. Even the last verse of the Bible, the Apostle John said, even so, come, Lord Jesus. That's the expectation in our heart, Lord. Please come soon. We long for your coming. Uh, Lord, if there's someone here this morning who's not 100% sure they have eternal life, not 100% sure they're going to heaven, may this be that time they be sure. May this be the time that they admit they're a sinner before you in their own heart. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God who came to die on a cross for sins. And confess him as their Savior and commit their life to him as their Lord. They could do that this morning, Lord, and have a new hope and a new reason for living. Lord, we take this bread and cup down. We thank you for them, how precious reminders they are of that sacrifice for us on the cross. We praise you now in this time of communion. In Jesus' name.